Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. I'm Amber Kenyon with Gateway Research Organization. We are a nonprofit agricultural research association based out of Westlock, Alberta. We're really excited to be running these networking nights with Steve Kenyon from Greener Pastures Ranching for a third season now. If you've made it onto one of these in the past or have listened to the podcast, you will know that it's a very free-flowing conversation and it's a lot of fun. Don't forget to hang out at the end as 7.30 is when we begin our after networking networking where the recording comes off, everyone can open up their mics, their video, and it's just a great time of, of hanging out and, and networking, spending time together. So with all of that being said tonight, we are very excited to have Dr. Linda Gorham with us. Uh, Dr. Gorham is with the University of Alberta, and she's a renowned researcher with a passion for roots. So this is going to be a great time to talk through how the roots of our plants interact with the soil around them. And Dr. Linda Gorham is one of my friends. I absolutely adore her. She's one of my favorite scientists. I have a couple, but she's definitely up there on the list. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to have her on with us tonight. So the other thing that's happening tonight is we also have Tatiana from Grey Wooded Forage Association with us. You guys might remember from two weeks ago, we had Greg Perinich with us, and I think I actually saw him log on tonight. Tatiana, would you want to talk a little bit about Grey Wooded Forage Association and the work you do there? Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Good evening, everyone. My name is Tatiana. I'm the manager of Grey Wooded Forage Association. Um, I started working with uh, Grey Wooded Forage uh, Association in December of 2021 before I committed myself to the world of uh, agriculture and extension. I was enjoying uh, life on the farm nine to five with uh, a lot of overtime. We also have uh, Greg on the call. We're a staff of two. Greg joined the uh, Grey Wooded in uh, November of 2018, so just before uh, all that COVID excitement. And uh, Greg is um, a trusted advisor on forage and grazing management and livestock production uh, for our members. Grey Wooded Forge is a membership-based nonprofit organization. Our office is uh, headquartered in Rocky Mountain House. But we support producers in six central Alberta counties, including our own Clearwater, uh, Lacombe, Red Deer, Panoka, Mountain View, and the uh, county of Wataskawin. The association was formed in 1984 by a small group of local producers who were interested in economical and environmentally sustainable grazing and forage production. Today, we continue that legacy with an engaged board and committed staff. We aim to play a leading role in the transfer of quality and proven information uh, throughout the forage and livestock industries. But when we don't lead, we partner with other leaders like Grow. Wednesday night networking is a great opportunity for, for us to uh, partner with our sister organization and reach uh, a demographic that is slightly different from our core group of uh, committed followers. So Grey Wooded offers uh, field schools, uh, workshops, webinars. Uh, we publish our monthly newsletter, The Blade. We participate on um, planning committees for conferences and the topics that we cover in uh, our extension activities include sustainable grazing management practices, soil health, pasture improvement and management, regenerative egg, animal health and production, and a lot more. 
our members have access to a team of uh, agriculture specialists. Uh, they also receive support in adoption of on-farm beneficial management practices. They can get help with uh, their environmental farm plan, uh, mentorship opportunities, as well as the networking opportunities. And uh, speaking on the support in adoption of uh, on-farm beneficial management practices, Greywood, it has uh, a number of uh, workshops coming up that uh, focus on the on-farm climate action fund program that's available to producers. Uh, our next one coming up is uh, January 26th from 1 to 4 p.m. at James River Community Hall. Uh, that's Clearwater uh, County. The next one is January 31st at Glen Park Hill in Leduc County. We welcome members and, and uh, non-members to these. Um, and then these ones will be follow up followed up with uh, off-calf grazing plan uh, roundtable sessions that will um, include your own Steve Kenyon. So we're really looking forward to that. Um, these are happening on February 6th in Caroline, uh, February 13th in uh, Pinoca. These will be full day uh, hands-on classroom technical overview uh, in three sessions and uh, we'll cover grazing plan development and cell design power fencing basics and tips, and uh, water distribution um, strategies. So thank you again for letting us partner on uh, this event. We can be found online, social media, or you can reach out to us by uh, email if you'd like to be a part of Greywooded. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Tatiana. And Steve, do you want to talk a little bit about Greener Pastures Ranching and why we do this? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Tatiana. Yeah, Steve Kenyon, Greener Pastures Ranching. I've been uh, on here now for quite a while, three years. Uh, we started it because COVID hit and there was no networking. And that was a huge issue for me because that's where probably 95% of my education has come over the last 20 years is networking at conferences and seminars. And so that was important to me. So we started this up and it was far more successful than I ever thought it was going to. So uh, it's been really great the, the last little while. We've got lots of participants and, you know, lots of regulars that show up here now. And it's kind of like a, a big grazing club that we're, we've got started here. So really excited to, to have Dr. Linda Gorham on here today. I'm a very big fan of uh, playing with roots, uh, polycultural root systems and what the roots do and the root exudates. And uh, that kind of gets me excited. So I'm ex uh, looking forward to the discussions here tonight. Uh, and uh, I'll uh, turn it over to Linda to kind of give a bit of an introduction of herself and maybe a little bit of a, a starting topic that we can discuss today about roots and interactions with the soil. Hey, thank you so much, uh, Steve. Um, my name is Linda Gorin. Prior to coming here, uh, I did my studies in Stuttgart in Germany, where I lived and worked for 12 years. And I was hired by the University of Saskatchewan uh, in 2016 to come and identify drought traits in lentil germplasm and so that they can introduce them into cultivated lentil. And the idea was to find uh, Amongst this wild lentil germplasm that they have at the University of Saskatchewan, it was for me to find out what 
the roots of this YGM plasm looks like, because most of them came from Turkey, Syria, where they believe lentil originated. And so that's how I ended up here in Canada. And now I have this position. Most people grow crops or pasture. We know that our roots are the part of the plant that connect the biomass that we see to the soil. And I think that, uh, in my opinion, um, they have been neglected, especially in Canada. Root research is really backward. But I really believe that roots are what is driving most of the things and maybe some of our problems could be solved if we unlock what is found in the roots of plants. My previous research showed that uh, everybody thinks that uh, a legume plant has a main taproot system and then have some branches out of that. But uh, when I started looking at lentil plants that were growing in Saskatchewan, I discovered that that's not true. That's what we see in the textbook. Our plants are kind of adapting their root systems, what we call uh, root plasticity. And we, I found roots that were like a sponge that you would find what we call a fibrous root system that you will find in grasses. And I found that amongst different lentil cultivars, this percentage of roots that were behaving crazy, I would say, were about 19%. So um, there's a lot to unlock. Um, I would leave the questions open so you can ask me and then I can answer specific. I don't want to repeat all the things that we already know about roots, like uh, they connect with mycorrhiza and bring pea and water to plants. Uh, the root exudates modify the soil rhizosphere and make other nutrients available for, to plants. I believe I don't have evidence, but I believe that roots do communicate with each other through those exudates and uh, there's some evidence that uh, when chickpea was grown together with, uh, I think with lentils uh, at the self-research farm that nitrogen was made available to the, no, chickpea and mustard. The, the chickpea was modifying the environment and making nutrients available to the mustard. So uh, there is more to root. Root research has been abandoned, mostly because people think root, root studying roots is very difficult. But I'm challenging everyone that we send people to the moon. I don't think that roots that have been with us for generations cannot be studied. Uh, so I will leave it open and you can ask me questions and I can answer them. I actually have a question. So what would be something that producers could like if they dig up a plant, what would be something that would show a healthy root system um, and one that's going to interact well with the soil? Um, I would say that it depends on your goal. Are you in a dry area? Are you struggling with diseases? Roots, because they are very plastic. I don't think that there is one type of root that is a healthy root system. Normally, we would we look for biomass. But what we, I mean, what I found is depending on what you want, sometimes you want deep and longer roots, like in lentils. What I was looking for was thinner roots. And what I found was that some of the roots of the lentils that were brought from say Turkey, and they were kind of brought into the breeding program. If you looked at the root biomass, it's, it's really tiny. 
But if you looked at the root length, what is these other plants that were adapted to dry environments were doing is they were not doing what our lentil is doing, which is producing huge massive roots on the surface of the soil. They were like, immediately the plant germinates, the root run right down up to the sea horizon, which in my experiment was like almost a meter. So they went right down deep into the soil as fast as possible. And then they were like tapping a lot of water for this plant. So it would depends on why you think that root will be healthy. Um, mass, uh, massive roots doesn't mean that that's a healthy root system. It really depends on where you are. Of course, if you have no problem with drought, you have a lot of moisture, you want this fibrous root that is uh, has more root area that is assessing huge volumes of soil and picking up our nutrients out of that. My uh, comment on that too, it would be, and, and you can clarify this for me too there, Linda, when you're looking at a root system, you don't want to have bare naked roots, right? You want to have, they're sticky, they're like all the soil and all the aggregates are stuck to them because that means it's pushing out the exudate, correct? Yes, that is correct. And why we have sticky roots is because this along the root, we have tiny root hairs. Sometimes you can see them with your naked eyes, but I do have like a whole platform downstairs where you can put them under this microscope and you can really see these tiny root hairs. And I have a program that can count how many of these root hairs are in on, on the roots. And this is important because um, exudates, like we need these exudates that are like green up that your soil particle and keeping it around the root you know, so that you can like mine out our nutrients out of that root. But also when it comes to, for example, a crop like canola, where we have club root, these microorganisms causing club root, they are going into this root hair. And that's where they, their entry point is. So you need to look at it in, in, <laughs> in that way. It can be positive, but depending, as I said, where you are and what you are looking for, would determine how. I mean, I have. I am of the opinion that um, because of the breeding efforts that have happened and all the selections have happened above ground, like the breeders go to the field, they look at the plant, they say, okay, is the yield okay? Is it tall enough? Or is it short enough? And then that's it. And the first conception that how tall a plant is, is how deep the root system is. We have missed something for several years. That's what I believe. How tall a plant is above ground or how short doesn't determine how deep the root goes into the ground. Would you say that's the tr true for pastures as well? I don't know about pasture. Sorry, Amber. Okay. Because I'm working. I'm a cropping systems person, but for crops, I have I have dug up crops, and because we roots are plastic, it's mm -hmm. not. Okay. Yeah, we have lots of different types of pasture grasses that the the above ground biomass, you know, it, it's decent, but then the below ground root mass is, you know, long and deep and digging in there. Right? There's way more below ground yield. And that's something that we miss in our, I was going to say modern agriculture, right? We're always concerned about what's above the ground when really we, we should be looking at that below ground yield because that's what's going to be sequestering carbon and, and adding that to the soil. When you were talking there, one thing that popped into my head was the, the entire time I went to college in agriculture, never did I hear the word exudate. 
I didn't learn that until about 10 years ago. Nobody ever mentioned the word exudate, that the fact that the, the roots push out sugars. And that blows me away that I never heard of that term before about 10 years ago. I hope I'll put it in my course so that the students can hear about this. And, and of course, root exudate is tied to how much photosynthesis uh, is happening in the leaves. So as they produce sugars and other stuff, then they kind of like send them to the root. As long as the plant is photosynthesizing, it's sending that sugar because there's something called a sourcing relationship. The source is the leaves that are photosynthesizing and then it goes to, to the root. And then when the plant kinds of tends and then have a flower, then that becomes the new thing. And then every the root and the leaves are all producing sugar and getting water, moisture and nutrients. And then it goes to the head. Um, we have a question from Larry, the birthday boy. We know how important minerals are to cattle. Are they important to plants and roots? Trace minerals. Micronutrients, you mean? Yes, yes. yes. They are important. And of course, as I said, uh, the roots are, is where everything happens. I know there are some micronutrients that you can apply them on the leaves. So foliar applied micronutrients. But most of our micronutrients, we know that it is the roots of the plant. And um, in the last year, I have been like I have been interested to know, like the the wheat plants that we grew thirty years ago, and the ones and the the varieties that are available today. What have we done to the root system? I mean, we hear a lot about like uh, fertilizer placement. Uh, I've started asking myself when we we seed using our seeder and we place our fertilizer and then we we place our seed and it starts to grow nobody i don't know whether anybody's looked at how soon do the roots get to where we place the the fertilizer and over time as the the plants evolve and pick up these nutrients and micronutrients and all of that is that is that the best thing for us you know, like I've started questioning everything that we're doing. Yeah, roots are the ones that pick up because we 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 know that in the prairies, about fifty to sixty percent of all the end that is applied is lost to the atmosphere. So every time you see somebody carrying or driving a truck of fertilizer, half of that is going out to the air. And why is that going out to the atmosphere? What have we done with our plants? I mean, yeah, we have the high yields, but is it the roots? I mean, I'm looking at all problems now from that point of view and asking myself, why are our plants lodging? Did we have lodging in the 1950s? Maybe somebody can tell me I wasn't here, I wasn't born. Did we have the lodging issues that we have? Because if you imagine a, a, a plant like somebody who is really big up here, just imagine somebody who is like massive body size standing on some tiny two legs, they're going to fall over. There are two ways you can fall over. If your body gets weak, you can fall over. But if you have these tiny legs, you are also likely to fall over. So I'm wondering whether some of the issues that we are having underneath all of these issues is how strong your roots are. Like we always say roots, like where people come from, like you have strong roots, you know, then you are more liable to be a stable person. So these are some of my thoughts. Linda, it sounds like you're describing me at the gym the other day. <laughs> Did you actually go to the gym? Maybe. I think Jim, Jim, Jim was the neighbor, I think. 
Linda, Linda, I have a question that was brought up at my cattleman's meeting the other night. That the, uh, you know how clover produces nitrogen out of the air? That they're coming up with something to inoculate other seeds that can produce nitrogen. Maybe Steve might have heard something. Have you heard anything about that? A fungus that they add to it or something to the seed to make it produce nitrogen or draw nitrogen out of the air. I may, I may be wording that wrong. I know that there are some proposals where they want to modify wheat plants to fix nitrogen, but I think mm -hmm. they are still at a very, like where they're still trying to knock down genes and stuff like that. I don't know anything that's applicable. Maybe Steve can speak to that. Yeah, they, it might be just some kind of uh, inoculant that they're putting out there because we can get, there are other nitrogen fixing bacteria in the soil that are not associated with legumes. So if you're okay. just, if you're just encouraging those ones, for one example, I remember, I think it was Dr. Christine Jones was explaining about how when the root exudates come out the root systems, they glue particles together, right? The silt, sand, and clay, and they form these aggregates. And inside these aggregates, you end up getting some bacteria in an anaerobic situation, right? No oxygen that pull nitrogen out of the air and supply to the plant. But there's this bacteria that's inside the aggregates. So it, it's, and they're not associated with the legume. So I'm sure there's lots of other critters in the soil that can get us nitrogen. They've just found another inoculant or something that they're trying to bring up, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, that's true. And the, the problem is research is lacking on how much, what are there and how much nitrogen are they fixing? It's what is lacking. Um, I was also in a conversation where they have found a grass that produce what they call biological nitrification inhibitors or inhibition. Uh, like this grass is able to secrete um, some exudate that would stop the bacteria that is in the soil that converts the nitrate that we apply in terms of fertilizer from, from changing into greenhouse gases from into nitrous oxide. And therefore, you would be able to put probably like 60% of the fertilizer that you give now, and you would just have your normal yields of crops. So they found that in Japan, uh, a group of scientists in the Paris, they want to cross whatever that gene is into winter wheat, and then subsequently into our, our spring wheat. And they would like to see whether this would also work here in Canada. Uh, if someone is interested, I can find the paper and they can read it for themselves. And I think it will be a move forward for other crops as well. If we can have the plant that you see it in your field, secrete these exudates from their root system. And these exudates will stop those bacteria from converting your nitrogen. So your nitrogen will kind of sit there and then the plant will be able to pick it up. That would, that would be a really good thing. Shorty, we have you up next. I see that your camera's on. It's good to see you again. Yes, it's good to see you, everyone again. By golly, it's been too long. Hi, Linda. Long time no see. <laughs> um, my questions, it seems rather uh, simple, but I think there's a lot more to it. Uh, is there a relationship between fertilizer placement and the plant roots being small and undeveloped? I've noticed in some of the plants that I've, or some of the research that I've done on my farm, that the plants that have no 
uh, fertilizer placement are just these great big beautiful root systems. But as soon as you add that fertilizer, they became these, these teeny tiny little things. So is there a relationship between fertilizer or seed place fertilizer and the root, root development? Yes, uh, Shanti, um, there is what we call plasticity. Like plants are able to go find, like they can sense, sense nutrient in the field, in the, in the, in, like in the field or in the soil, and they can go get that nutrient. If, and which is why I'm worried about what we've done, because like all the breeding work, all the selection work has happened under maximum fertilizer availability. So the plants have become lazy. Like, why would you go? It's just like feeding somebody at home every day and asking them to go look for a job. They are comfortable. Why should they? So that's what we've been doing to our plants. And um, so if you if you don't, if you feed the plant fertilizer, there's no need for them to become aggressive or their root systems to grow bigger. And therefore there's less exudates that are sent out because there is there is food. They're not hungry. But if our plants are hungry, then they will go out and put out roots and tunnel through even deep, deep hot pans in the ground and, and yeah, and get uh, mineralized their phosphorus or whatever is lacking and, and, and make them available. So what you've observed is it's normal. Thanks, Linda. You're welcome. I can't answer that one, Shorty, because I haven't used fertilizer in 25 years, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I get that, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. So there was a question in chat here about is anyone using Vermicast? And we're not going to open up the mic to everyone. That'll be for after networking, networking. But have you done any work with Vermicast, Linda? Uh, no, I've just worked with Humulite. Humulite. Do you want to talk a little bit about your Humulite um, trial? I think people might find it interesting. Just briefly. Oh, okay. That's about. Humulite um, is kind of deposited around the world. It can come either from fresh water or from or from salt water. And in the province of Alberta, where we are, when in I don't know thousands of years ago, when coal was being formed and the soil from plant material, some of that material transformed into humulite. So we have, I think, billions of metric tons of humulite in our province. And there's also some in Saskatchewan. What are humulites? Humulites are composed mostly of humid acids. And the humulite deposit that we have in our province, fortunately, is freshwater humulite. And it has uh, humid acids that are naturally occurring in our environment. That means when our plants are breaking down, like if a crop, you have as your crop and you have residue on the field and this crop starts to break down, it release, it breaks down into these acids. So that's what we have in a huge deposit. We the deposit in, in here in Abeta has a between we we've done some measurements between 70 to 90 percent humid acids and the rest is micronutrients. And so um, the people at the mine had come to us because some farmers were applying this humulite in their field and nobody had done any research on it. And so we my project is involved in determining how much humulite we should apply in our field and uh, what the impact would be on crop yields. We are also trying to see whether because humulite would kind of trap nutrients and keep them in the soil. 
and make them available to plants. We are trying to cut back fertilizer and see whether in the presence of humulite, you can cut back your fertilizer up to half. And we are also trying to see how, measure how microbial population changes in that field over time in the presence of this humulite. This is whole raw humulite that we are using. I'm aware that in Aveta and across the prairies and across the world, there are all kinds of humic uh, products. We have uh, reached out to a group out of Italy that had also worked on humulite. And what we are learning that is that the fact that one farmer uses humulite and it works on their field doesn't mean that the next person using humulite would use it and it would work. Not because the fields are different, but because humulite, the structure, like the chemical composition of humulite is very different depending on the source of the humulite. So if your source works, you have to stick with that because not all sources of humulite would work. So that's the summary of the publications that we have so far. So source is everything. So if your humulite is from a source and you have different molecules that compose, uh, compose of that humulite, you might apply it in your field and you have no result compared to your neighbor who has it from a different source. So there's a big gap there for research to check what these sources are and what works for what purpose in the Paris and what doesn't work. So I, I'm kind of like Larry to say, hey, go take this humulite and use it, except I know what the source is and we have done some testing. So at this point, we've been, I think this is two years into the project. This is what I can tell you from the literature we have put together. We've gone through like humid acid, humulite, like 200 papers. This is what I'm seeing at this point in time. I think, Jay, I'm going to kind of call you out here because didn't we put some humulite on to at the heifer pasture? Yeah, um, we didn't actually put humulite on. We used biochar and wood ash. And okay. uh, we've got two years worth of worth of uh, replicated uh, numbers on that. Still working on getting some really good uh, significant differences. So far, after two years, we haven't uh, seen a significant difference in yield. Okay. So Jay's with Gateway Research Organization with me. Um, and yeah, that was my question. Would that ever be something you would look at, Linda, on whether or not it would be something that would help pastors and what effect it would have on pastors? Uh, yeah, I mean, if there's a proposal, there's a question that I can, yeah, of course, I can look at it. And I, I also believe that why we are all focusing on yield, we should also consider the root architecture, what humanite does. Like it's a lot that humulite has been shown, at least from the colleagues in Italy. Like it's a lot of underground work that needs to be done. Like the root size, how how uh, humulite has kind of uh, in the presence of humulite, the the plant roots are able to produce like drought hormones that make the plant more drought resistant. You mm -hmm. know, yeah. So there there are some so there's something there that needs to be looked at and which might not be you necessarily. I know every farmer wants to know about the yield component, but maybe it's a sustainability thing for the long term. Have you seen a response in root systems based on other inputs that people put on, whether that be, I don't know, um, any type of sprays or have you seen response in the root systems on that or has that been looked at? 
No, that I don't know that that has been looked. I don't know anybody here who is looking at roots in my university. There is a, a group of researchers that are working in Rangeland who have looked at roots. I think Dr. Cahill and Cam, Cameroon. I think they've looked at roots to an extent. I don't know anybody looking at agricultural lands and roots in the Paris. Wow. So, Linda, I've got a, a little bit of an additional question for that, then. If we're adding humulite or wood ash or some product like that, well, really, we're adding some carbon, correct? Right. There's a fair bit of carbon in there. So as we add carbon to the soil, uh, our biology likes to balance the carbon-nitrogen ratio, right? I believe in the soil, it's about 24 to 1. So as we increase our carbon through what we add through the exudates, that'll automatically make our nitrogen go up. So we might get yield boosts because we're adding carbon because the biology actually are bringing in more nitrogen, correct? Yes. Okay. So when we come, when we start bringing in products, I mean, we're, as an industry, we're kind of addicted to, to buying products all the time. So now we're looking for something new because we're not allowed to use fertilizer. We still got to make sure that the economics are there, right? Exactly. We, we can't haul manure very far before it's not economical. So again, with humulite or wood ash or anything we're bringing in, we've got to still be looking at the economics to make sure it's worthwhile. But honestly, for me, anything that we can bring in economically that can increase carbon is a good thing for our soils anywhere. One way to look at the economics is to look at it in the short term. Okay, it's it giving you money today. Another thing is to think about would your grandkids produce crop on your farm? That's another question. Like if you would apply humulite now and it's going to be your soy and you know that your profits are going to stay the same and then your grandkids are going to in inherit this farm and they're going to be able to farm it. I, I think that the economics works. It's just that it might not be in your generation. Uh, that's something that we need to keep about, which is that sustainability part of it because i think that if you wait until the system has crashed then it's going to be more costly yeah for sure and that's a that's a mindset change between kind of parts of agriculture right a lot of a lot of agriculture is you know throw as much money at it right now as we can because we need to get money back uh, you know, we're in, we're in debt. We need to pay off debt. When we're looking at the re regenerative side, I think, and a lot of people on here are more, we're trying to look 20 years, 30 years, 40 years down. And, and how do we make this soil better later on? So I think it's a, depends who you're talking to in agriculture is which mindset they're in. Um, and that's a big difference. It's short-term cash flow versus long-term economics. Exactly. Awesome. Oh, there's video. Um, next up, we have Travis. Are you ready to go, Travis? Sure am. Perfect. So my question was, is how do the root systems change based on your rainfall? So like, for example, I typically get 31 inches of rainfall a year and my root structure situates itself to handle 31 inches. But what would it do to handle 50 inches of rain per year or to handle 10 inches? Would it just go the science route of, oh, it goes deeper or shallower, or what exactly changes in that, uh, in that amount of rainfall? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, moisture is a big driver of root architecture. Normally in a, in a drought year, your plants are get put in more roots, so it's going deeper. It's going deeper looking for moisture ev everywhere. 
And in a wet year, roots normally would grow at leisure, I would say. I wouldn't say that it doesn't go grow deeper. If you have like very soft soil, it will, it will just grow through the column. But uh, if it's a dry year, no matter how, how hard the soil is, roots have a way of tunneling through the soil structure and trying to go find water. Like they can sense moisture. At least that is what research has shown from the labs in Belgium, where they kind of like put planted a crop somewhere and then put fertilizer or moisture far away. And you could see the roots, like they have a timeline. You could see the roots making their way all the way to where the moisture was. So roots are living things. Uh, they don't have eyes or noses like us, but they have a way of sensing their environment and they will go grab resources if they need to. The only problem is in those drought years, your above ground plants will, will suffer because then the plant starts to, to direct resources where they need help. Like they start sending it to the roots to go find what they need. So then in... If you go back to a wet year, you have all them really deep roots from a drought. If you go back to a wet year, would those roots retract or would they just stay there, which would then better prepare you for another dry year? If you have a perennial crop, the, the roots will stay there. If they are alive and they stay throughout, they're going to just stay there. And the what the plant will do is that if there's so, mo so much moisture at the top of the soil, well, that's what we call rewatering re 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 experiment. Like in the lab, you will just, after a drought, go, go pour more water on the plant and see what happens. It will produce new roots to, to make, to maximize this moisture that is available. Like we, our plants are not just sitting there at the mercy of nature, like they are, this is where they live and they, they sense the environment. And if there is moisture on the surface, they'll just put more roots and more root hairs. And then they would like grab that moisture. Thank you. You're welcome. Travis, that's a good question about differences in, in years. I mean, we have, you know, every year is going to be different. When we're managing for our soil, right, we're trying to build soil we're trying to manage for both extremes, right? If we build soil, we're growing that water holding capacity, that'll help us get through the drought. But at the same time, when we're building that soil and we're getting those roots to go down deep, we're also improving infiltration. So that will help us with the wet year. Okay, one of my, kind of my, a lot of the research goes into, oh, we had a drought, we better develop a new drought tolerant plant. And then, oh, we've had a couple of wet years. We, oh, we better develop a, you know, a flood tolerant plant for this situation. Which year are you going to plant those, right? So we need to, instead of worrying so much about the, you know, which, which variety we're growing, how about we build a system that can uh, mitigate either extreme and make that work so the, you know, the plant in the middle is the one that we want to pick. Um, yes, uh, and I will add that uh, increasing the soil organic matter of your soil is key to drop proof your, your, your soil. If your soil has very little soil organic matter, very little amount of water stay, moisture stays in that soil. I mean, this, is, this has been known for the last 100 years. So if we're not doing things that are increasing our soil organic matter, we are not, we are not preparing for droughts. Perfect. Thanks. Um, I got kind of mixed up. So Larry, you're going to be in a second, but Karen has, she isn't able to speak right now. Um, Karen Linquist asked, isn't it more about frequency and when rainfall happens as opposed to total annual precipitation that would impact root depth and biomass? I think root depth and root biomass 
is how the plant senses the environment. If rain falls once and there's no rain, the plant will just produce more roots and go and look for moisture. If the plant is investing a lot of energy into that root development and a rain event happens, the, the plant will sense that and start producing some like new lateral roots to make use of the moisture. That is what is called plasticity in root, in root and that drives every person like me interested in roots crazy because if I show you a plant root, I need to tell you what happened that I got that root system. We we have grown, um, I don't know, 10 kilograms of roots from wheat in a hydroponic system. Like we just gave it nutrients and gave it moisture and that's how much you can push the plasticity like we had this bunch like i could put my hand around it this bunch of roots from one plant so that that is what we call plasticity like the plants can produce huge amounts of roots if you provide the conditions ready we just wanted in our lab to see how much root one plant can one wheat plant can produce so plants will do what they need to do to survive and they will sense the environment and there is no set way you know yeah, so a, a stress is going to help produce more roots, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, and to add to that, Karen, I mean, the frequency of rainfall, you can mitigate that by having more water holding capacity, right? Some of my pastures that I've been managing for 20 years, I can go two months without a rainfall and they still, they, they've still got moisture. Where some of my newer pastures that I've just taken over and I haven't built up that water holding capacity, I'm still working on it. I mean, after three weeks or a month, then they start to brown off because they don't, they can't hold it. So frequency of rainfall isn't, you know, it, it isn't as important as what your effective water holding capacity is. That's true. Because then you have a system that is buffering that. So your roots are not all over the place. Perfect. And Larry, are you ready to go there, Larry? Yes, Lena, Steve talks about this a lot, but is there any clinical or any uh, university studies about the benefits of adding cattle to uh, cropland to increase the biology? I know Steve talks about it, but it, it would be helpful if he had some university studies to take to farmers to tell them, look, hey, here's the benefits. But is there any studies do, being done at the university level about adding livestock to cropland? Uh, not that I know. I think most of the time it's like the livestock people are going their own way. We we try to put we try to put a proposal last year that will look at intercropping, the value of having that intercrop fed to I think it was beef cattle, and then for some people to come and check whether the quality of the beef goes up in this system because of the high quality feed that the, the cattle will get, but we didn't get funding for it. So, as I said, research is really behind where the farmers are that I would accept, like from talking to people and seeing where they are at. I, I have been trying the last couple of years to put a huge intercropping just for us to even like select which crops should be be, be intercropped together. Like we know about pea canola, are there other crops that we should be growing together and to look at this from from above ground, but also to look at the root architecture. Like when you have pea and canola, where does the pea go? Where the canola goes to? When you have uh, chickpea and mustard, where, where does the root of the mustard goes? But then it doesn't get funding because I think there's a lot of 
other things in the background, like every commission wants to increase acreage of the uh, monocrop and they have the money. And so I think that if uh, like the problems that regenerative farmers they have, I believe that is a group that is getting stronger uh, and maybe they should try to find funding bodies that would maybe my ideal world would be all the regenerative farmers get together, get a funding body and put their priorities and get researchers like answer all these our questions for us. We need it answered. That way it would work, but I, I think several people on this call have expressed my frustration. Since I got here three years ago, I've been trying to get one proposal funded on roots and no, no, nobody would touch it. Do you, do you see the change subjects here, but do you see the benefits of doing polycultures? I know when you grow wheat, you just grow wheat. Is there anything you could grow with wheat as a double crop? Because anytime you have more than one plant, your soil biology is going to be better. Uh, I have not done the research because I have not had funding yet. I, I see farmers um, doing intercropping and I don't, I really respect them. They wouldn't do something if they didn't think that it, it has some value. But as I said, research is very far behind, you know. And I think that also like culturally, people are also staying in their safe region, like safe zone, you know. Uh, you know how to grow wheat, you have the combine, you know what to do. And now I'm telling you to or canola, and I'm telling you to add pea in the mix. Uh, what do you spray on these? Or chickpea and and flax. Uh, what what herbicide should you spray? There's all these gaps. Insurance in some provinces in the prairies that we insure both crops individually. In some provinces, you have to pick one crop. So we are looking at two crops, and then you are insuring one. There are all kinds of issues that uh, I think that like the regenerative community will need to to come together, talk about this, talk to specific funders, and say this is our needs. Oh, these are our needs and, and ask for research to be conducted that way. I mean, an individual researcher like me, I'm putting things out where I think, hmm, it will maybe explain why the farmers combined two crops and it worked and maybe why it didn't work and where we should be giving this recommendation, but it's not flying. <laughs> yes. On the latter side, you talk about the chickpeas and mustard. Uh, I'm a Mayo man. Any studies on chickpeas and Mayo? I mean... You didn't, did you get that answer? Isn't mayo eggs? <laughs> like yes, man, mayo mayonnaise? Yeah, okay. yeah, he's being funny. <laughs> I had to break up, I had to break this up. It's, the uh, clinical studies are a little over my head, okay? So I'm having to try to keep up. <laughs> I, I haven't got my translators on, see? There you go. <laughs> so thanks, that, thanks, Linda. It's very helpful. You're welcome. I mean, I just wanted to throw out there that one, another thing that worries me is that there's some research on some of the topics that we have talked about in yes. Australia, in other parts of the world. But then I consider that high risk because if we've not done it in the Paris, us in the Paris, we know how our soils are variable, our our uh, management systems are variable. It's it's hard to recommend this to farmers because you can say, yes, it's worked in Australia, and then the farmer runs the risk of this all falling apart. Yes, you know? right. And they have a big, big investment. It's hard to do on large farms to try something new that might go wrong. I understand. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. 
Yeah, so I really struggle with this. I have information on drought and what you should do with fertilizer after drought coming from Europe. But the reality is perisoils are different, managements, different crops are different, equipment, everything. So you can say people should do that here because then you're putting the risk on the farmers. I strongly believe that the research, the, 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 the risk should be transferred to the researchers, not to the farmers. Yeah, Larry. Um, so, so Linda, just so you know, Larry's from Georgia. So he's way down south in Canada right now, Larry, we have these things called living labs where mm-hmm. we're getting researchers to go out and we're doing experiments right on farms. So the That's idea good. is yeah, the idea is to get the researcher out on the farm of the innovator and early adopter. Right. The, 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 they're doing those experiments to see what's going on. Right. We're, I mean, that's a I think that's a quick way to catch up the researchers to what's already yeah. what they're experimenting with. And I agree 100 percent, Linda. These innovators and early adopters have been paying for the mistakes. Right. Exactly. They're doing those experiments in there and they're losing money. And then, then they, they get one success and then they try it again. And we need some taxpayer dollar to make those mistakes. Yes. And or provide them with subsidies. Yes. One of the examples that I have is I've, I've got a, a grain producer that I work with and he's been doing uh, piola. So peas and canola for, I think, about eight years now. And one of the things he's noticed and he said, we need research about this after he plants his piola. So he'll do strips in his field. Right. He'll do canola and then he'll throw a strip of peas in the middle and then, you know, then back to canola or vice versa. And he'll experiment every time he does it, he experiments. And what he's found in his yield monitor maps is that not the year after, but two years after where he had the piola compared to just the peas or just the canola, there was a big boost in yield in his third crop. Right? He said, I've seen, I've seen it numerous times. That strip two years later has a boost. So is that a residual of the nitrogen or the plants for the root systems breaking down is that a uh, a delayed increase of the biology in that area right really interesting that two years later he noticed there's a boost not not one year later (laughs) so something to throw throw into the experiments yeah there's a lot there's a lot that we don't know and you, there's so many variables then right you start putting now now put in three mixes or four mixes and and you know 16 species mixes and all of a sudden there's so many variables but boom it worked hey how do we know what worked and why it worked it's it, it gets really hard to experiment on but it's amazing some of the successes we've seen out there just trying stuff yeah mm-hmm. I've, I've started thinking that maybe we need to start employing modeling in this in this <laughs> you know like you can try all kinds of scenarios then we can see some movements where they are and just target experiments to these scenarios and see you know would you say linda just kind of going off of that would you say that one of the biggest like like we talked about how research kind of follows the farmers in what they're doing. Would you say that funding is probably the biggest reason why it is? Or are there other reasons that are kind of delaying research, making it kind of slow sometimes? Yes, I would say fondness. I mean, like I could have had three seasons of combinations of intercrops across the Paris already this year. Mm-hmm. And that would have provided valuable information because we had 
like it's a team of 13 people, 13 researchers across the Paris. And I wanted them to look at carbon sequestration when we had all these combinations. I wanted them to look at aggregate structure, anything you can think of. I even had the team looking at the bees that will visit your field when you have more than more than one uh, uh, crop in the field and all of that. But then it, it, it didn't get funded. I tried last year, it didn't. I put it back in this year. But then you, you can see like the longer it goes and then at some point I'm going to like say, okay, I'm going to put it to the side because it's not it's not working. So mm -hmm. I think funding and also people, that mindset change that Steve talked about, like people, the mindset of it has to be monocropping only or else. I mean, I've even had some people call me an environmental whatever an environmental activist because they looked at the proposal that was looking at intercropping and they thought this is what they should say. So it's it's rough. It's rough to put it mildly. It's rough like people who think that the system is like this and that's how it has to stay forever, whether it's sustainable or not. There is there is that school out there as well. Right. Don't give right. don't give up, Linda. Keep trying. This is this is why we love Linda so much. She's trying all sorts of stuff. So. <laughs> um, next up, we have Shorty. Are you ready to go there? You are. Um, yeah. Linda, in your intro, you talked about how you think plant roots can communicate with one another. Can you elaborate more on this? I know not all plants have ears like corn, so there's got to be something else going on. I know. Sorry, that was a bad joke. Uh, thank you, uh, Shorty. Uh, actually, um, just from this thesis that they did out of the self-research farm, uh, where they said that they, as I said, they had this chickpea and, and mustard. Uh, they were looking just at nitrogen availability and pea, and they discovered that the chickpea, uh, the, the legume, normally you would, I think what they were looking for was nitrogen transfer from what was fixed by the legume should go to the, yeah, to the mustard, but then they found that the chickpea was through pH up and down was making pea available for the mustard. So I'm like, I mean, as I said before to you, Shorty, um, I arrived in the North America in in twenty in two thousand and four, and that was the first time in my life I saw monocultures. I'm from the tropics where we grow several crops and it's because these crops have like different root systems. So they're kind of like, if the, if the nitrogen nitrate gets leached in the topsoil, then it goes down and then there's the banana roots. And so the banana plants take it up or if the banana can't take it, then there is the coffee or the cocoa where your chocolate comes from. And so the cocoa plant will take up that nutrient. So it's worked in the tropics and people living for thousands of years in the tropics have lived out of this. So there's obviously some communication there between roots of plants as they modify the environment through the exodate. But as I said, that's not research work that I have seen myself. So I've not done any work specifically on that communication, but I believe that there is. That's the job of the mycorrhizae fungi, right, Shorty? They interconnect well, all the root systems. Yeah. Part, partly, but there's also other root exudates that come out. And so I know I was talking with Joe Williams about how, and I, I, I'm drawing a blank, but how different roots can actually influence the maturity of other plants through, and Linda, you, you'll have to help me with this one because I'm just drawing a blank right now <laughs> on how one root will tell another plant, okay, I'm done. 
you got to get, you got to mature. So I know that there is communication. I just don't know the complete mechanism of it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the complete mechanism, but I know that it's through those root exudates. It, it goes back to the old, uh, the three sisters, right? In the gardening, uh, the three sisters, how you get three different types of plants that work together and they, they stimulate each other and all together, they all grow better, right? Can we implement that old, old way of growing gardens into our cropping systems? That's, yeah. uh, that's an experiment we need to work on. Yeah, even in monoculture, there is competition between plant roots for resources as well. And that also influences how far or how deep plants are. Mm -hmm. And uh, like the plant roots are in the field. It doesn't have to be two different crops to compete. It, you can still have similar crops planted together and then you have this competition going on. And it most often leads to early maturity, like if they're far away and they have some plants will just grow and grow, especially if they have indeterminate growth habits. Well, Steve, I am trying to figure those things out. <laughs> I am trying. Yeah. I just posted in the chat the video that I made of Shorty with crop trials in the garden. So that is for the podcast listeners that is on our Gateway Research Organization YouTube channel. You can look it up by looking up Gateway Research Organization and there's crop trials in the in the garden. I'm, I'm going to give Grow a little bit of a boost here. Uh, a couple of years ago, Linda, I was pestering the manager at Grow because that's what I do. I'm good at pestering people. And I wanted to see an intercrop trial. And so we didn't get any funding for it, but we did it anyway. I think they got seed donated and they, they did it for me anyway. What I, it was in a wheat crop and we wanted to see what different combinations of, of plants, you know, cover crops that would go interseeded with that wheat crop, how it would affect it. So we seeded the wheat first, sprayed it out. And then we went in and in these four strips and on one strip, it was, we left it as the control. It was just wheat. Uh, the second strip we put in three different plants with it. So basically the wheat had a head start and then we're seeding these plants underneath after the idea is that then when he harvests the wheat, then we have these that are seeded later. So they're still going to be green. And then you'll have that living root in the soil for the fall. So first one was a control. Second one was three different species with it. Next one was seven different species with it. And then I think we did 15 species with it. I was so excited. We got it in there and you could see the, you know, some of the plants coming up and it was the drought of 2015 and the wheat just outcompeted everything because it got too far of a head start. So for an experiment, they did a, a really good job for an experiment with no funding. And uh, I would love to see that again as a full experiment, right? To, you know, do that three years in a row in different, you know, six different areas of the province type of thing and see what we could see. Um, I do have the cover crop project that is ongoing where we have different seeding timing and we have like a group of overwintering and a group of non-overwintering clovers. And what we're doing is we're trying to do different seeding times, like, broadcast it between before seeding and then with the equipment and then at fungicide timing and at the end of the season. And this year we had like really good establishment of all of our cover crop combinations. And I was just looking at like the preliminary data, take it just that it was one year, which is just this season. And we could see that where we had the, the clovers and where we didn't have them, it didn't affect the, the yield of the wheat. 
So that's that's the preliminary work that we've seen. We're going to repeat this for three years, but it would be nice to have that around the province and see where what combinations can be put together for what regions, because I had a farmer I'm over at St. Abbott and they said, I said, wow, we had fantastic establishment and we had these big facility plants that were towering over my wheat plant. And I was worried because I was like, they are going to stop photosynthesis from happening because they are casting a shadow, but didn't affect the, 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 the yield of the wheat. So, and we had a lot of bees out there. So I, I believe that we can change the system and as, Steve said, uh, a, a, a mindset shift, you know, and we, for our area in St. Abed, the cover crops that were seeded, like after we did harvest, didn't even emerge and then the winter came. But the ones that we broadcasted and the ones that we seeded together with the with the crop, we didn't give it a head start. The wheat, the wheat and the canola just overpowered all the cover crops. By the time they, they started growing, we already had a head start. So... There's room there for us to diversify our systems and yeah, and 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 sequester some some carbon in there and improve our yeah. soil. That could even come down to row spacing, right? Yes. To give a little bit more spacing, just to give them a little bit more time to get some sun before they get crowded. Uh, mm. it, could, it could be that. That's what happened with uh, corn in the cover crops, right? Everybody said no, corn doesn't work. You can't put you know, you can't put anything else with corn. And as soon as they went to a 60 inch spacing, then all of a sudden, hey, corn works in a in a polyculture. Look at that. Um, so, yeah, it might be spacing or, or you know, seed density or whatever it is. So. Great. Thanks, guys. It's an awesome discussion. Um, Travis, you are up next. Are you ready to go? So in a perennial polyculture, like let's say a, a native pra uh, prairie grasses, are the roots ever going to stop growing, whether that's like growing deeper or growing wider? Um, and like a silly example I have is, is could I go out and dig up some native prairie grass and find a grass root that's taller than a skyscraper? Good question. Good question, Travis. Um, I think that the roots will grow to the limits of where the plant is standing. Like if the plant hits a hard pan, then the, the root will start growing like lateral root. But plants do, like plants are not stupid. They invest energy only when it's comfortable for them. Like if they have had the root size that is assessing enough soil that is meeting their needs, then the root is going to stop. And then maybe the next year, if the plants need more root, it would decide whether it wants to go deeper or it wants to go lateral, depending on what the plant is sensing. So the plants really, I don't think that you would have like the roots, like you wouldn't get that root that we got in, under those artificial conditions. The thing is, we were asking ourselves, how much can one, how much root can one plant produce? So we kept feeding it and we saw that it just grew and grew and grew and we, it, we had this mass from one seed, but it doesn't mean that that's what happens in the soil. The, the plant would not invest energy into producing roots unnecessarily. It would do it when it needs it. Thank you. Awesome. And Karen, are you ready to go? It's kind of an interesting question here, just, just to kind of, a, I don't know if it's a thought experiment or what. Anyway, my question is, do we know why brassica species, like let's say canola or mustard, why they do not form good mycorrhizal or muscular mycorrhizal fungal relationships. Is it because of certain chemical compounds that the plant is emitting through the roots that are discouraging AMF from infecting the root cells? Or is it something else? Is it like, I don't know, quorum sensing or something? Do we know? 
or we still have to find that out yet? I'm going to answer part of it and then pass it on to Steve to add some flesh to it. <laughs> like uh, the brassica species, especially canola that we have currently, has the most sorry root I've ever seen in my life. It's the the root <laughs> is so tiny. It it's just sitting on top of the soil. It's just a sucker for nutrients and has very few lateral branches in. Like it's it's really just like one small thing that is just put into the soil. Uh, compared that to the weed root system, which is huge, fibrous, goes at least deeper into the soil layer and tries to mine out nutrients. So uh, I'm asking myself if you have this tiny beady kind of root sitting in one place, like it's not even going like into the soil. It doesn't even give that mycorrhiza opportunity to start to network. And then even if the mycorrhiza is going to colonize it, it's this, this beady, beady root. Like it's really sorry to tell you the truth. I looked at it and I was like, what in the world? Is it the canola plant that I saw uh, above ground? Like you have that. It's really standing on that tiny legs that I talked about. That's where this, I was thinking, well, how can I use to describe this thing? It's really like a huge thing standing on a tiny leg. About the root exudates and mycorrhiza connection, I will leave that for Steve too. Maybe Steve has some ideas. I have not checked out what their exudates are. So to add to the, the root system, yeah, we've been selecting and genetically modifying these crops for so many years, and we've only been focusing on above ground yield, right? We've been ignoring the below ground, which is important. I've kind of joked for years. I mean, if they're going to genetically modify something, why don't we put a canola panicle on the top of a Canada thistle root, right? That would, that would produce some canola and you would have it as a perennial. The problem is there then that they wouldn't be able to sell seed after that. Cause you'd have this beautiful perennial that's growing the, the crop that you want. And the seed people will kill you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the I, I don't know a whole bunch about mycorrhizae fungi, Karen. You you probably know just as much as me. I, it's it it loves some plants a whole bunch. It loves other plants a little bit, and some plants like the brassica family just doesn't like them at all. Now, is that because we've been manipulating those brassicas and they've been de developed in soil that's dead? Right. So we've we've changed them. If we were developing that plant over the years in live soil where there is mycorrhizae fungi, would it be, you know, would, would they be interacting? But they've never had mycorrhizae fungi when they've been developed. So all of a sudden mycorrhizae fungi goes, what is this stuff? This, this doesn't, mm -hmm. this doesn't taste right. Or this doesn't, we can't connect with this. So I think it's because we've been selecting for the plants or modifying those plants with the absence of that. And that's maybe causing it to, you know, it just, it's never seen it before. It doesn't, it wasn't developed with it. It makes sense. Yeah. Just, this is kind of more of a rhetorical question, but it, it kind of begs the question too, you know, now you look at the, the um, domesticated brassica species, but then it starts wondering about, well, what about the native brassica species? And is there, is there something that's been formed with them? Is there some kind of, mycorrhizal fungal network of some of some kind form with them and we probably don't know about that because it probably hasn't been studied enough but it's it's still kind of an interesting question for sure and i think there's lots that we need to discover thank yes. you guys yes thank you karina i do accept that i mean 
I'm just going to share something that's kind of off a little bit. Um, when I was playing around with soys uh, from Saskatchewan and running my, this is my Y lentil panel, I went and got like soy around the fence in one plot, put it in a tube and grew Y lentils on it and <clears throat> did not put, did not inoculate it with any of the inoculants that we have because I was like, would this thing not relate with the wild rhizobia that we have out here in the Paris? And I, I, I have a publication and some pictures to show you. I pulled this plant and I looked at it and I went like, what is this? There were all kinds of nodule shapes that you would not imagine. Somewhere like in the shape of my finger, they were bright red. This was no pink nodule. They were like bright red. They were fewer. You know, like when we pull our, our legume plants, you see all these nodules, like several of them. No, I had these healthy plants. I had fewer nodules, which were like, they were pink. Some looked like candy that you can eat. Some were like oblong, but they were all very bright red, not pink. And we went like, what is this? And we, we put them in a tube and send them to to a lab in the US and I've never heard back what, what was inside because I was kind of curious, like what kind of bacteria do we have out here? And since then I've always asked myself, the inoculants that we are putting in into our system, are we doing justice to the native bacteria? All of that is still unknown. I can just tell you like, I was looking for root systems and looking for good roots to put in this breeding program. I wasn't looking for nodulation. It's just that I was watching the roots and I was like, what are these? You know? And some of the nodules were not even attaching to the root. They were attaching to the base of the stem, which was more intriguing. Like, I was like, what? Does, the, does this, does nodulation happen in the base of the stem? And so what, what do these nodules do? You know, so there's a lot out there still that needs to be exploited. So, Karen, maybe what we need to do is get Dr. Linda and Dr. Monica. I, I'm only good with first names. Um, what was Dr. <laughs> Monica's last name? Starts Ursula? with a G. Ursula. Because she's the mycorrhizae fungi. Maybe we we got to get you guys together and do a research project. Then we get the mycorrhizae fungi and the roots and everything working together. So, yeah, that's perfect. I like that idea. <laughs> I'd actually like to have all of you guys all in the same room together and just be a fly on the wall for the conversation. Um, next up, Chase. I see your camera's on. Thinking you're ready to go. Yeah. Is this corn sensing everything that's going on? And then uh, how does the, the scientific model holding y'all back? That makes sense. In, in roots, in the Paris, uh, like when I was working with roots at the University of Saskatchewan, my nearest lab was Pennsylvania State University. There's a root lab there that saved the U.S. There's no root lab for Canada, which is what I'm kind of advocating for, because we have all these problems. We have all the problems with lodging, all the problems with diseases like club root disease. We have nutrient not being picked up because we just don't pin our fertilizer for the atmosphere, costing farmers tons of money. And we need to get some baseline data and then we can model. We can try to model and find more, more areas that needs to like 
either we model or get a group of farmers and say, what are you struggling with? And put research targeted research proposals that will answer producers' questions. The problem, as I said, is if you put anything in roots, I put it around, not the commissions, not, no, nobody touches it. I don't know what to do. I'm sitting here. I have farmers have left seats here for me to check out what the roots look like. I, I have researchers have sent me like weed that was grown in the 50s because I went to them. I said, what did the root systems look like? We don't know, but we have seats for you. And then I wanted to see, like, did we did we breed out our roots? And now we are left with these plants that are standing on shaky feet and that's why a little breeze passes and they all fall on their faces. I mean, like, what is happening? Steve, do you have any comments to make there? Uh, sort of. I don't think it's, uh, it's going to answer the question, though. But one thing that popped into my head during that was the, uh, the, what the what's the term? A rhizo, rhizophagy? Where, rhizophagy. Right. Well, where the plant roots actually eat the bacteria, absorb them, steal the nutrients out of them, and then spit them back out, right? Yeah. I thought that was so cool where the plants are eating That's the organisms. Plant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know much about it, but that, that's what popped into my head there. Is I, I don't know why, but that's that. What, what can you ex, expand on that for us? About um, the plant roots? I think that, I don't know whether they, they steal it, but I think that they, there's a synergy there. You know, like the, the, the plant root is producing sugar that is made from the leaves through photosynthesis. And this bacteria, they like eating and the plant root is providing a home for them. And then the bacteria is doing their thing and providing these nutrients, making them available to the plants. And then the plants are using them up. So these are kind of like always mutualistic kind of relationships. Like I'll give me something to eat and I'll give you something also to eat. It's just the same thing with the mycorrhiza. Like the plant is giving them the sugars because they are sitting down there in the soil. They have no sunlight. And then the mycorrhiza is bringing them for pea, phosphorus, and water. If there's a drought, like, hey, get something and keep feeding me because if you die, then I die too. Yeah, I just thought it was funny that the plants are eating the organisms, that's all, and then spitting them back out. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Uh, we have who Barbara up next. This may, we'll see how long this one goes. Um, this one may be the last question. So we'll see how things go. If you guys have something really pressing, you can throw it into chat now. Hi, Linda. Um, I just wondered whether there's any evidence that perennial plants, prairie plants, kind of set themselves up for the following year the way trees do. It's <laughs> a crazy question, but. I think maybe we'd be different with the plants if we knew that that they were kind of getting themselves set. I know the conifers uh, the year after our uh, our heat dome just went crazy with with uh, with all their cones. That's my question. Uh, Steve, can you repeat it? I lost part of it. I don't know what is my video. Actually, crazy. so did I. I, I, I can. I, I couldn't hear. It. So the question is, um, trees have a tendency to 
basically set themselves for the next year. So do prairie perennials set their course in a given year for the next year so that they're ready for the next year, the way trees do. So like seeing how the conifers responded to the heat dome of 2020 by exploding with cones the year after. Do perennial grasses and plants do that? I can take that one if you want, Linda. Uh, there's lots of different species in, in perennials and they all work a little bit different and I'm not an expert on them, but uh, lots of scientists that I've talked to have, have talked about how the, the perennial grasses especially set the stage for next year's growth the fall before, right? So you there you want to give them that time in the fall to, you know, uh, fill the fill up their energy stores right their root reserves to set those growing points in the fall and that way they're triggered and ready to go in the spring so yes they're setting themselves up of, you know there's lots of different species i'm not saying they all are but there's lots of them that are setting themselves up in the fall uh, for the next season yeah and amber it wasn't surprising that they produce cones the next year every time you trigger a plant that they're gonna die, then they're going to put seed. <laughs> That's how we made our mango trees produce mangoes for us when we were kids. We went with a machete and, and like try to cut the plant, like wound the plant. Once you do that, then it sets flower immediately and then you get lots of mangoes. Interesting. <laughs> I like that story. <laughs> they work with a pace lily. <laughs> they're like, if I die, I have to have some babies. That's the rule. <laughs> but not good if you have too many monkeys. When we went, when we went down to Columbia, uh, our friend down there had a uh, the, the one of his houses that he had. It was a kind of a his cabin. Uh, he had a mango tree in the backyard, and we went down there, and he has this these two little herds of monkeys or something that are back there. And he said, "Yeah, I've been here for like five years now, and I have still yet to have a mango off this tree because the monkeys take them before they're ripe." Oh yeah. So <laughs> he didn't have a, not a single mango because he got too many monkeys. So oh, we got tons. We got tons of mangoes. <laughs> um, so we have one more question, and then we'll we'll call it on this one. So what we'll do after at the end of this question, Greg, if you're here, I'm going to call on you to kind of just do some closing thoughts for Gray Wooded, but um, then we'll have everybody kind of do that. But first, we'll get Clinton. Are you ready to go? Mm, I might read it out so he asks should any fertilizer be placed with the seed or does that just create lazy roots uh we know all the issues of placing fertilizer with seeds or the burning and stuff that's why i've put in a proposal with NSEC asking what is the distance that makes sense like what we have now is that the right distance that we got by chance or no I don't have an answer. I still need to investigate that. Uh, on my ranch, I always place the fertilizer above the seed because that's where my cows poop. I I do love that the more you learn about science, the more you learn that you don't know really anything and there's so much more to know. I think that's one of my favorite things about science. <laughs> it's good. Okay, so we will do some closing thoughts. We're going to go kind of in the order that we did earlier. So I just want to thank you on behalf of Gateway Research Organization, Linda. And I want to thank everyone for attending. On behalf of GROW, please check out our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button. Um, and let's go to Greg. You want to just give us some closing thoughts from Gray Wooded? Oh, yeah. Uh, this has been a really good uh, and an enjoyable session, uh, I think, for everyone. Linda, I think... Uh, 
like if uh, we got into a room, as, as Amber had mentioned, with a whole bunch of us, that would be a, a really entertaining uh, session, as well as if we could all get out in the field with some of our ideas, uh, we could be pretty dangerous and, <laughs> and pretty exciting. Uh, really enjoyed this session. Gregwood Forge is, is really pleased to, to partner with GROW on sessions like this, and uh, we hope there's uh, more in the future. Tatiana had mentioned earlier some of the events that we have for, for the people that are in central Alberta. Have to always be cognizant of the wide net that is thrown with this, with this uh, uh, event. And uh, just to make sure you can check our website and uh, for some of the events coming up. Again, thanks again. Uh, a very enjoyable session and uh, hope everybody got as much out of it as I did. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Greg. Just as a bit of a closing, we were talking about soils and roots and, and how we're, we're growing the soil, right? We're, we're, the roots are pushing out exudates. To do that, we need to collect sunlight, right? It, it, there's, a, there's three parts to carbon sequestration, photosynthesis, exudation, and biological conversion. So it's important to, to have all three of those. And, and I, I was actually talking about this today in our session. And uh, I talked about the when the University of Alberta came out, they did a study on our ranch and they were measuring albedo. Albedo is the difference between the light that's coming down and the amount of light that's being reflected back. Wow. Okay, so they actually had a drone with a little solar panel on the top and a little solar panel on the bottom. So you could you could measure how much light was being absorbed versus what was being reflected off your off your land. So that was really cool. Uh, I'd never heard that term before either. With that, I'll turn it over and uh, thank everybody for showing up here tonight. And uh, we'll let Linda do some closing comments. Well, um, I'm so happy to share. Um, uh, just to follow up a little bit on what Steve said, I do have equipment to come out and measure photosynthesis in your in your farm or something uh, i've come out out there at camros and i think there was a, a group of farmers shorty was part of that group that uh where they like apply foliar applied humid acid and they wanted to see whether when you do foliar application of humid acid it increases photosynthesis in your field. And so I do have a handheld gadget that I can quickly uh, come out there and, and measure photosynthesis. And we can see what your leaves are taking in, what is it dissipating as heat and what is lost reflected out and we can so if you ever run into that situation i have the gadget reach out to me we could try to find some time and i'm doing this as my service to farmers i'm not doing that for pay and we can have a conversation there in the field and see because i think uh, there's a lot of products out there that farmers have been sold and sometimes farmers don't know, does this work? Does this not work? If you are in a tight, run it by me. And I don't know everything, but if I have a pigment or something that I can help have you with, I will. It was a joy explaining this root, root plasticity and the importance of root and how it interacts with everything in the crop and seed system from carbon sequestration to the fertilizer we apply and to photosynthesis. And so it was a joy talking about something that's really dear to me. And I hope we will move research in this area forward and answer some questions that we have. Thank you very much.